Listener Production. July 2023 was the hottest month on record. The warmest month in the past 120,000 years. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. Even by Greek standards, this is terrifying. Canada's wildfire season is now officially the worst ever recorded. Those are some of the fire and heat wave headlines that have been coming thick and fast this Northern Hemisphere summer. There was the hottest July ever. Uh, we had days in China and America where temperatures soared over 50 degrees. And record wildfires in Canada and fires causing tourists to evacuate in Greece, Italy and Algeria. And all this is causing a lot of fear that, well, A, life on Earth is changing fast and B, it's setting us here in Australia up for a very scary bushfire summer. So in this briefing, we're going to speak to one of Australia's leading bushfire and climate experts, Greg Mullins. He's the former fire chief who tried to warn Scott Morrison about the catastrophic fire danger in the months before Black Summer. He says we've only done 20% of the hazard reduction burning we should have done by now. Look, it's really concerning because we're coming out of a triple La Nina event, very rare event where we've had three cooler, wetter years and, of course, massive flooding. Whenever we swing out of those events, there's only been three in the past before this, we've gone immediately into a bad bushfire season on the East Coast. That's Greg Mullins, and in this briefing, he'll give his take on the bushfire risk we're facing this summer in Australia. First to today's headlines with Jan Fran, it is Thursday the 10th of August. G'day, the Commonwealth Bank. Ah, Good news for them. Annual profit has risen 5% in the last year to nearly $10.2 billion. This year we have helped more than 150,000 Australians buy a new home and have lent $35 billion to help small businesses create jobs and grow. That was the CEO of the ComBank, Matt Common, there, sounding very positive, spinning it as a a positive thing, not just for the bank, but the bank's customers as well. I don't know how positive it is for people who've uh, seen their mortgage rise considerably in the last year. But anyway, um, more good news for the CEO of the ComBank. This is a strong result that it's going to earn him a pay packet. Oh, my God, it's so eye-watering. $10.4 million he is going to take home this year, um, up $3.4 million from last year. That does include his base salaries and uh, bonuses and, and awards. But, wow, I'm not <laughs> earning that. No, not many people are. So the infuriating thing about this result is that their rise in earnings was mainly due to an increase in their net interest margins And that's come about because of rising interest rates, which is ruining other people's lives. So the gap between what the bank has been paying to borrow money and the rate at which they're lending it out has grown over the last year. And that's what's driven this amazing result. Can you believe that? Rising interest rates of driving this profit? Yeah, good to see someone's benefiting from that. I did hear uh, Matt Common speaking about it yesterday and he was really pitching it as a look forward to the next few years, saying that we expect some difficult economic times and that it's a good thing for the Commonwealth Bank to be in a good position to be able to really support their uh, mortgage holders in the next few years if things get really difficult for them. I don't know if I'm buying that, but good spin, mate. (laughs) 
An alcoholic version of the soft drink Solo called Hard Solo is in the crosshairs of some federal politicians. So North Sydney MP Kylie Tink will hold talks with industry leaders and other crossbenchers today after the release of Hard Solo, which she says should never have been approved for sale. It comes after the Cancer Council of Western Australia issued a formal complaint about Hard Solo last week, arguing it contains strong and evident appeal to minors. Yeah, it sort of does. If you look at Hard Solo compared to Solo, they look very similar. The Mm. alcoholic one has a sort of yellow writing on a black background and the non-alcoholic one has black writing on a yellow background. But, I mean... I saw a picture of them side by side and uh, you would get confused. So I think there's a point there from the Cancer Council of Western Australia. Um, Asahi says, not the case though. Um, it's refuted any claims that hard solo can be confused with regular solo, but let's see what happens with these talks. Well, the whole point is to build on the brand of solo. That's why, you know, they've kept the graphics basically the same and, and changed the colours. Like, otherwise they would just come up with a whole new brand. So I don't see how that argument from them really stacks up. Not that I necessarily think they shouldn't be able to do this. I think part of what's interesting about this is that it's it's a very rare thing that a soft drink would cross over to be a hard drink. I mean, we see beer brands making non-alcoholic products, but I can't remember a time we've seen it go this way. Brittany Higgins has spoken out for the first time since the release of the inquiry report into the Bruce Learman case. Uh, She did post a statement on Instagram where she accused police of never wanting to charge her alleged rapist. Um, She claims that police were disgraced by their conduct and not the ACT's top prosecutor, Shane Drumgold, who has resigned after being accused of serious misconduct himself. So the police union has now responded to that statement from Brittany Higgins saying that ACT policing was right to apologise to Higgins for its mistakes, but that the inquiry had also caused profound harm to investigators and their families who were passionate and committed to their jobs and helping victims. Yes. Look, I, you know, I sort of feel for everybody that is involved in this case. Well, most people anyway, but I do remember that at the centre of it is always a person who has accused someone of rape in the most serious of ways. And one thing about her statement that really stood out for me was when she said, I will always remember how small I felt having five senior police officers I've never met in a room belittling me after I had just spent hours giving evidence. So as tough as this might be for police, as you say, I can only imagine how tough it is for Brittany Higgins. And a Sydney man who killed an ibis and tried to cook it has been jailed for six months and fined $800 on animal cruelty charges as well as shoplifting and drug possession. So the 60-year-old took an ibis from a park, stuffed it in his backpack and rode a stolen bike to his home in the eastern suburbs before decapitating it and hanging it to dry in May and... Maybe, you know, lots of us didn't realise this, but the Australian white ibis is a protected native species, so you're not allowed to do that. No. And even if you were allowed to do that, you probably shouldn't be plucking birds from the park and cooking them in your apartment just quietly. Not a cool thing to do. I grew up in the country where, you know, killing things and eating them wasn't that unusual. And I just sort of thought, well, there's a lot of ibises around annoying people. Could be doing people a favour. I mean, I 
guess I guess if you're living in the country, it might be a different story. If you're in the city and plucking a protected native species from a public park, it's slightly different. Mm. I would not recommend. Um, this gentleman told police that. When he's high on meth, he enjoys hurting the white ibis. <laughs> so that also doesn't help his cause at all. If you're thinking about plucking a bird from the park, don't do it. That would be my advice. Yeah, well, that's good advice. It'll keep you out of jail. Um, I guess there's <laughs> there's a difference between an unofficial pest and an official pest, isn't there? The, the thing is, ibises for many people are seen as a pest, but technically, far from it, they're a protected species. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. All right, Jan. Thanks for that advice. I'll definitely take it on board. Um, We'll catch you again tomorrow. I'm about to look at the um, nightmare heat waves and wildfires in the Northern Hemisphere and what that means for us here in Australia this summer. So this is a really interesting exchange that happened recently on the south coast of New South Wales between the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and a journalist. Horrific scenes from Europe are really triggering to people on the south coast. Yeah. What guarantee can you give to this community that they won't see a black summer? Well, I think the community are sensible enough uh, to know that 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 is a a question, uh, quite frankly, that, that you're asking me to defy science. No politician who's serious uh, can stand and say uh, that they can guarantee that there will never be a natural disaster. Now, I think that moment really encapsulated some of the fear around this upcoming summer. And I think, you know, for the journalists asking the Prime Minister to guarantee there won't be a bushfire was a bit cheeky. But the question really did get to the heart of how a lot of Australians are feeling. So, Let's find out more about the risk of a bad bushfire summer here in Australia with Greg Mullins. He was the Fire and Rescue Commissioner of New South Wales for 14 years and has been a rural firefighter for 50 years. He's fought fires around Australia and in the US, Canada and Europe. And you might have heard of him when he really came to prominence during the black summer when it was revealed that he tried to meet the Prime Minister Scott Morrison in the months beforehand to warn him about what might and eventually did. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. How concerned are you about the big heatwave and fire events we've seen in the Northern Hemisphere over the last few months? Look, it's really concerning because we're coming out of a triple La Nina event, very rare event where we've had three cooler, wetter years and, of course, massive flooding. And whenever we swing out of those events, there's only been three in the past before this we've gone immediately into a bad bushfire season on the East Coast. So the chances are that that heat will come to the Southern Hemisphere uh, because it's driven by record ocean temperatures. So all of the portents are there for us to also have a lot of heat and a lot of fires. So tell me more about the the drivers of that extreme heat in the Northern Hemisphere. What, What patterns are you seeing there? Look, this is climate change in action. There's no question about that. The scientists are very clear. The oceans have warmed to a point that it's never been recorded. Most of the heat from the sun is being absorbed by the oceans. Um, The added heat trapped in the atmosphere by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, um, the vast majority trapped by the oceans. And we've been oblivious to this 
but it looks like it's getting to the point where the oceans are starting to release energy and heat added to what's being trapped in the atmosphere. So we're getting these incredible temperatures, you know, 50 degrees in China, um, high 40s in a lot of other countries. And of course, vegetation wilts and dies and then burns if you have an ignition source. So we're seeing these record fires in Canada, in Greece, Mm. Portugal's now burning, um, Algeria. So right across the Northern Hemisphere, that's what we faced in our black summer in 2019-20, the hottest, driest year ever recorded in Australia. The only thing that will save us from a similar summer is that we haven't had drought. So I don't expect to see those sorts of fires, but if it suddenly gets hot and dry and just stays that way, who knows? Right. So at this stage, you don't think we're potentially having another black summer, but are you saying that could change with just a few really hot, dry months? I've been a firefighter for over 50 years and I've really studied the science of bushfires. And when I was a young firefighter, you needed a couple of years of drought before having a really bad fire season. That's no longer the case. And it changed in the late 1990s or mid 1990s. And there's a phenomena called flash drought now that was only recognised in the science in 2000. But what that means is very high temperatures day and night leading to very high rates of evaporation. And within weeks or months, you can actually um, replicate conditions that in the past would have taken a year or two of drought. It's really concerning if that heat does come to the Southern Hemisphere, the fires could be quite a lot worse than we saw in 1957, 1977 and 2001, 2002 after the previous triple La Nina events. Mm. So our bureau hasn't confirmed that we're in El Nino yet, but they are saying it's odds on. So what are you seeing in our weather forecast that concerns you for the next six months or so? Well, El Nino is always a worry because it it has an intensifying effect. It makes it a little bit warmer, a little bit drier. And on average, that means that the extremes are more extreme. And that's when you get your bad fires, your bad storms, your bad natural disasters. And the interesting thing here is that in the past, last century, you couldn't have a bad bushfire season on the East Coast without the intensifying effect of an El Nino. But because of climate change, now, we regularly get extremely bad fire seasons without an El Nino. Now, black summer, there was no El Nino. Mm. So what will a bad fire season in future look like when you've got a couple of extra degrees because of El Nino? And that's something um, people like me are quite frightened about. So when you look at the fuel that's there, what are you seeing? Because obviously a large proportion of our bushland on the East Coast was burnt out in black summer and then we had the triple La Nina and all the rains that came with it. So what's out there? Because I know that in Black Summer, a big part of the problem was those those canopies up high that really took those fires to another level, basically turned them into fire storms. Is that kind of fuel back? Well, look, put it into perspective, more area burned in New South Wales, about 5.4 million hectares, but nationally between 20 and 30 million hectares, but uh, 21% of eastern broadleaf forest, and that's against a yearly average of between 3 and 5% 
we've never had fires like this before. And the intensity, as you said, was just incredible, um, driving what we call pyroconvective storms. So the fires were so hot, the heat went up into the stratosphere and brought storm force winds down to the surface and formed fire thunderstorms and fire tornadoes. Now, the fires are much more intense. Now, what I'm seeing after a triple La Nina, all that rain, it leads to prolific growth. So those areas that were burnt, there's a lot of regrowth. Are they ready to burn? Some will on a bad day, but some still won't. But it was 21%, so there's 80-odd percent still to burn, and most of that is around the most populous areas in New South Wales. I'm just talking about New South Wales now, but Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong, the Lower Hunter, the Central Coast, basically not touched by the Black Summer fires. So we could have massive fires affecting many, many homes. So it's quite worrying. Now that you talked about the tree canopies, that's when the fires carry into the canopies and you get those extremely hot fires. Now, what I'm expecting is that we will get fires, but due to that moisture in the soil, which will remain, it might pull away from the surface, the scrub layer and the grasses will dry out, but the big trees will still be pulling up a lot of moisture from down below so the tree canopies won't be as stressed. So hopefully we won't get those incredibly intense fires with massive spotting, which means burning leaves, twigs and bark carried 10, 12 kilometres ahead to start new fires. And how did we go with backburning? I imagine with all that rain, it hasn't been easy. In percentage terms, how much backburning have we done relative to the amount we should have done? Well, look, we, we have a three-year backlog because uh, we haven't been able to burn because it's just too wet. Now, it rained on the weekend. That means three more weeks of drying before we can do any more. So we've only done 20% in New South Wales of the target for this year. Wow. But the two years before that, we basically did none. So you've got prolific growth, um, particularly in, in areas of grassland, and an inability to reduce the hazards around settlements. So it's it's a bit of a perfect storm. Mm. They're ready to burn. So there was a sense after Black Summer that it really drew our focus to the problem and, we, you know, we even had a Royal Commission looking at what we could have done better. But then, as we all know, we were quickly drawn into the pandemic and then the floods happened during that time. So did that mean we we lost focus and failed to learn some of the most important lessons from Black Summer? Look, in fairness to governments, federal and state and local, they've done a lot of work, particularly the state and territory governments. They've invested a lot in their emergency services. Federal government, we had a change of government, of course, and the crossbenchers with the Teals and the Greens. So there's no longer an argument with the government about climate change actually existing and happening, uh, thank God for the mm. planet. But there's only so much you can do. And we will at some stage, if we go past 1.5 degrees warming, then two degrees into uncharted territory, there might not be a lot that we can do. They're talking about parts of the planet that will be uninhabitable by humans, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of the Middle East, being over 50 degrees and day and night temperatures being basically unsurvivable. And 
fires of a magnitude we've never seen before. So looking at Canada now, Greece, um, our black summer, they're just getting worse and worse. But as a human race, we really need to face up to the fact that if we do surpass 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees and then heading towards 3, it's not going to be a planet like the one we're used to now. We must reduce the temperature. We must stop our addiction to the poisons of coal, oil and gas that are killing this planet as quickly as possible, get away from that addiction so that we can stabilise the temperature and actually have a survivable planet, not just for us, but think about the three billion animals that were killed or displaced during the Black Summer fires. That was Greg Mullins, former New South Wales fire and rescue boss and longtime rural firefighter. So I think the only bit of comforting news there was that historically we've needed prolonged droughts before we've had a shock of bushfire season. Also, he did say that there's still a lot of deeper moisture in the ground, um, which will stop some of those drier canopies from really turning into firestorms. But aside from that, there were so many concerning realities in that interview. One, that all these precedents are shifting with climate change. And one of those was that a really hot, dry blast could quickly change the risk. So we might not need a drought beforehand to still have a bad fire season. Also, the the big standout point that they're 80% behind on backburning in New South Wales and that the bushland closest to the big population centres like Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong is some of our most dangerous and built up because it didn't burn in 2020 and they haven't been able to do the backburning they've needed to do. So look, it doesn't leave me with a great feeling about this summer, but there's no point ignoring it. Listener.